Please uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, the last part of this chapter, verses 13 through 25, through 24, and um, as you're turning there, let's, uh, let's just remember that, that Paul in this fourth chapter, as he makes his way through this uh, argument for the gospel, He's arguing for the gospel, uh, and what he's arguing is that a person is accepted by God, found righteous in the sight of God, declared innocent in the presence of God. A person is accepted by God, not on the basis of anything that he is or does, not on the basis of anything she is or does. That's the whole thrust of his argument up to this point. Uh, and through chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, he, he makes clear that it is because of Jesus, because of this incredible and multifaceted work of Jesus that a person can be accepted. And, and folks, that's great news. I mean, it takes the pressure off of you. It takes the heat off of you. I mean, it lifts the whole burden of obligation off of you and places it squarely on Jesus. And so what is it to be accepted in the sight of God? What is it to be right with him? What is it to be declared innocent by him, to be declared positively righteous? Well, it means that I look away from myself, I give up on myself, and I look to Jesus. Go into a Christian church just about any place. Why is there a cross there? It's to draw your attention away from yourself to someone who has acted as a substitute for you, who has done it for you so that by trusting him, resting in him, you find acceptance with God. That's his argument, and he brings Abram into this argument because Abram is the principal example, the first example of somebody who is accepted by God, not on the basis of who he is or what he's done, but solely on the basis of what God credits to him, which he receives by faith. That's that's the whole thing here. Now, what's interesting to me about this passage is that Paul goes on in verses 13 through 24 and 25 to continue to talk about Abraham. And I want to suggest to you that what he's talking about here uh, in the end of chapter 4 is is something of a segue from a discussion of this idea of being justified by faith, declared righteous and innocent by faith in the presence of God, to this whole business of living by faith. If you remember Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, he quotes Habakkuk, the just by his faith shall live. You're not just justified by faith, you live by faith every moment of every day. It's not like God saves you and then turns you over to yourself to finish what he started. This is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And Paul in these verses is, is, again, setting Abraham before us as an example of what it looks like for somebody to live moment by moment, day by day, in dependence. Two words, not independence, one word. That's our problem. But rather in dependence, in faith, resting in and upon Jesus Christ. So there's the sermon. Now let me read the text. Okay? 
Verse 13, Romans 4. For the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and void, and faith is, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. Okay, both. That's what he's saying there. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from Jesus our Lord, uh, from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. Uh, Lord, help us. We, we need your help. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Uh, help us to see in Abram. Uh, a true example, a true model, someone we can look to. But help us look beyond Abram to see the greater Abram, Jesus, who is the exalted father, who is the father of a vast multitude, who walked this path before us, this way of looking to you and your word and trusting you, believing you, resting in you moment by moment, day by day. Thank you, Jesus that you understand what it is to walk this walk. Now help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest as we look at this passage, as we think about Abram, who is not only an example for us with respect to this matter of being justified by faith, being accepted by God, declared innocent, declared righteous, but who is also an example, a model for us, of what it is to live moment by moment, day by day, walking by faith. I want to suggest that there are at least three things. I may find four or five before this is all over. But there are at least three things that we can glean by looking closely at what is a kind of an anatomy of faith. If you look at the life of Abraham, a kind of an anatomy of faith. Uh, it's the study of a living thing, not a, not a dead thing, but a living faith, faith. There is a living thing that is going on here in Abram's life. And let me suggest there are at least three things. We're going to look at one today, and we'll look at two more in a couple of weeks. I will be away next week doing David and Rachel's wedding. Reggie Kidd will be here to preach. Um, he's a good friend, a dear brother. Please don't be absent. In fact, the place will probably be twice as full as it is now. <laughs> So, 
Three things. The first, the nature of faith. The nature of faith. What is faith? The nature of faith. That's this morning. And then in a couple of weeks, the growth of faith. The growth of faith. The text says that Abram grew in his faith. We want to look at that. And then the outcome of faith, which you see in verse 13, which is just staggering and which will probably end up getting a week all of its own. The outcome of faith, that Abram would be the heir of the world. The outcome of faith. So the nature of faith, the growth of faith, and the outcome of faith. What is faith? What makes up faith? People say to one another and about one another, he believes, he has a faith. She has a faith. What is it? Let me just make this observation. 17 times in this fourth chapter, 17 times in 25 verses, the words believe and faith occur. 17 times in 25 verses. Now, that should, that should be a kind of a, you know, a, a, should tip us off to the fact that this matters. I didn't go through the first three chapters to find out how many times the word occurs in the first three chapters. Somebody can do that for me. I'll be happy to receive your report back. But it's 17 times in this, first, in this fourth chapter the words believe and faith occur, and they come from the same root word in the original language in the Greek. Uh, to believe or to have faith are the same thing. 17 times, okay? It's a big deal. It's a key idea. And the thing, the thing that is in view here is not uh, the other way in which the word faith is used in the New Testament. There are two ways in which the word faith is used in the New Testament. Sometimes the word faith is used to refer to the objective content of Christianity. The objective content. The faith once delivered for all time to the saints is the way Titus uses it. It's the objective content. It's an unchanging thing. It's a faith once delivered to the saints for all time. It doesn't change. Uh, the faith is the kind of thing that is summarized in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. There is an objective content to this thing. There is what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. There is a real truth. There are things that Christians believe, and they believe them not because they've spun them out of their own imagination, but because they are true, and they are true objectively. Okay? I've said this before. Can I just say it one more time? Everybody believes in objective truth. Everybody believes that there are true things outside my own head. Everybody does. Even those people who will try to argue... The truth is a purely personal and subjective thing. They will try to convince you that truth is a purely personal and subjective thing. What are they doing? They are, in effect, arguing for the fact that there is a truth outside your head which you, too, ought to believe. And it is the truth that all truth is personal and subjective. I can't make that work. I try, I struggle, but I can't make it work. Everybody believes that there is truth outside my own head, and they not only believe it, they believe you ought to believe it too. So Christians are not freaks of nature when it comes to this notion 
that we believe there is an objective content to the faith. Everybody does. I, I, I just would encourage you to think about that if you've not thought about it before. So there is the faith, but what is here in this chapter, in these 25 verses, is not the object content of the, objective content of the faith, the stuff that's outside my head, but it is the subjective act of believing, the business of having faith, the exercise of faith. So that's the first thing. First thing to, to sort of get clear in our heads here is that, that faith is believing. It is believing. It is the exercise of faith. And then here's the second thing, and this is critically important. New Testament faith, Old Testament faith, biblical faith is not a brain thing. Okay? It's not a brain thing. Here's what I mean by that. It's not just believing with my thinker that certain things are true objectively outside my own head. Okay? It's not just assenting to certain things. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is trust. Believing in the Bible is trusting. It presupposes those things that are true outside my head that remain true whether I believe them or not. It presupposes that I have a thinker and I'm supposed to use my thinker to try to understand this objective content of the faith. That's why we have that book table back there, because we want to give people books. Some of them we do give. Actually, we sell them. But we want people to have books that seek to explain this objective content and work it out in our lives, apply it to our lives. That's why that stuff is back there. Right? There is an objective content, but we want people to, we do want people to understand it, but we want people to trust it and trust themselves to it. That's biblical faith. That's the point that Abram got to. You may remember from several months ago this illustration that I used, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to belabor this thing too long, but I want to press this home, this illustration that I used several months ago referring to the theologians in the history of the church who've tried to understand what it is truly to believe. And they distinguished among three different aspects or even levels, if you will, of faith. And they expressed those distinctions through three Latin words that actually have come over into our language. All right? They've come over into our language. You remember this? Notitia. Notitia. It comes over into our language as the word notice. It means to notice something. You see something, you notice, you acknowledge that it's there. It's there. Okay? A thing is there. But then there's the next word, assentia. And when, when you assentia something, you contemplate that thing. You, you look at it more closely. You consider its qualities. You consider its characteristics. You reflect upon it. That's the next level of faith. But that's not New Testament, Old Testament, biblical belief. New Testament, Old Testament, biblical belief is trust. It's trust. And that is fiducia. That comes over into our language as fiduciary, right? Lawyers understand this. Bankers understand this. When you have a fiduciary relationship with someone, you have entrusted yourself to that person. You have attached your well-being to that person. The illustration that I used those months ago, 
to illustrate this is the chairs upon which you sit. It's one thing to notice them. It's another thing to step back and ask the question, is this chair truly a chair? Does it have the properties associated with a chair? Is this chair so designed that it will do what chairs are supposed to do? You can believe all of that stuff. But you haven't, in the New Testament, Old Testament, biblical sense of the word, you have not believed, truly believed in that chair until you pull the, put the full weight of your existence upon it, until you entrust yourself to it. That's biblical faith. It's not just saying, yes, I believe Jesus existed. Yes, I believe he was hanging on a cross at a particular moment in history, particular place and time. Yes, I believe he came back from the dead, out of a grave, on the third day after his death. Now, you come to the place, as a real and true Christian, you come to the place where you entrust yourselves to these things, and they become for you these things to which you have attached the totality of your well-being and your identity. That is to have a fiduciary relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the point that Abram got to. So faith is believing, but faith in its fullest expression is trust. And then here's this third thing. And this is what I love about the Bible, and it's what I love about this passage. Faith, New Testament faith, Old Testament faith, as exemplified, modeled for us in Abram, faith is realistic. Faith is realistic. Faith is not faith in faith, right? Nor, as we will see, nor is faith faith in an outcome, But faith is something that stares reality squarely in the face and continues to believe. Faith is realistic. Barb has a um, little quotation uh, on a bulletin board in our laundry room from Garrison Keillor, Prairie Home Companion guy. Garrison Keillor, Barb heard her say this, Garrison Keillor said one time, sometimes you have to stare reality squarely in the face and deny it. Right? You're supposed to laugh at that point. (laughs) Abram doesn't do that. Abram does not stare reality squarely in the face and deny it. Abram stares reality squarely in the face and acknowledges it and continues to believe, perseveres in believing, doesn't quit believing. Did he have flaws and did he make mistakes and were there bumps in the road? Let me just encourage you sometime when you've got, you know, when you've got some time, and you've all got it, but, but just use it in this way. Read chapters 12 through 25 of Genesis, the story of Abram. You can read it in 30 minutes. It covers 100 years. It covers 100 years. Read it. You, you'll see the bumps in the road for Abram. But what 
Paul is telling us here as he uses Abram as this example of what it looks like to live by faith, entrusting myself to the God who is really there, continuing to entrust myself to the God who is really there. He says that Abram continued to believe, that he didn't waver, that he didn't stumble, that he continued to believe. I think you see the clearest example of this if you contrast verses 18 and 19 of this passage. Here's the evidence that Abram stared reality squarely in the face and persevered in believing. Listen to these two verses again. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, he was a 100, she was 90. You know any couples who have had children at 100 and 90? Not 190, but the father 100, the wife 90? You see the tension here? Do you get the tension? I have a friend, a good friend, who has had to wrestle deeply with the goodness of God, with the faithfulness of God, with the promises of God. Has had to wrestle Deeply, and he has this phrase. There's a bad fact pattern here. There's a bad fact pattern here. Go back to Abram's life. Again, read it. Read it. He was 75 years old when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was 75 years old when God made the first promises to him in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 2. I will make of you a great nation. He's 75 years old. God makes that promise to him. I will make of you a great nation. And then a greater promise. Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, through you, by means of you. That's the the impact of the text. How can all of the families of the earth be blessed if you are now 25 years later? It's been 25 years for Abram. Called at 75. He's 100 years old. The promises made way back then. How can you become the father of a nation, how can you be a blessing in all the earth if now you are 100 years old and you are married to a woman who is 90 years old and you both are as good as dead? That's what the text means. He considered his own body and he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That, my friends, is a bad fact pattern. That's a bad fact pattern. Let me just say, 
I know my people not as well as I want to know them as we spend more years together. But I want to say I know my people. I know them pretty well. And I know there are some bad fact patterns in our lives. What do I mean? What am I saying? I'm simply saying that as you look at the life of Abraham, circumstantially, looking at himself, considering the circumstances of his life, all of the empirical data, all of the information, everything he could see with his eye, touch with his hands, smell with his nose, hear with his ears, there was no baby. There was no baby. The promise is unfulfilled. That's a bad fact pattern. That's a bad fact pattern. You know, you add to this a little bit deeper in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Another promise. God says to Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. Father of a great nation. Blessing to all the nations of the earth. To your offspring I will give this land which is the verse Paul quotes in Galatians 3.16 and applies to Jesus, the offspring who will come from Abraham and who will be himself the blessing to the nations, who will himself be the one who will inherit the land and not merely that little slice of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, but the whole world. How can you have... How can you have a descendant who will inherit the land, in fact, the whole world, if you don't have descendants? You understand what we're saying? This is what is called a bad fact pattern, and yet Abram believed and continue to believe. believe. That's what's meant by this phrase, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. What was his hope? His hope was that he would have offspring. What did he have to look to? What did he have to trust if that promise was to be fulfilled? What was his hope? He had to look to biology. He had to look to anatomy and physiology. He had to look to his body. He had to look to Sarah's body. Now, these people weren't idiots. They know how babies are made. They know where offspring come from. Their hope was in their ability to conceive and give birth, and that hope was dashed. It was gone. Crushed. Don't mean to be indiscreet here, but even if Abraham could... Sarah couldn't. Okay? No more ovaries, no more eggs. Biologically impossible. I'm pressing this because there was nothing in the fact pattern of their lives that suggested, that even remotely suggested, that the promise could be fulfilled. And yet, Abram believed. And folks, he believed because he had a new and greater 
hope. He had a new and greater hope. And so he hoped against hope. He hoped over against hope. And his new hope, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, his new hope was the promise and the person of God. His new hope was the promise and the person of God. He entrusted himself to God, to his promise, to his word. Not to himself, not to his wife, but to God. And the text suggests to us again, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, is that his faith grew enormously, enormously. Just think of it. Just continue to think with me about Abram. Here is a guy whose first name means exalted father. Hi, my name's Abram. Oh, where are the kids? Nada. Nyet. None. And then God changes his name from exalted father to the father of many nations. That's what Abraham means. Father of a vast multitude. Hi, I'm Abraham. Really? Where are the kids? Where are the grandkids? Where are the great-grandkids? Where's the vast multitude? Nada. Yet. None. None. How does Abram's faith grow? It grows because constantly, constantly, constantly he's having to learn with that name and that name change and that promise constantly ringing in his ears. Abram's faith grows because he has constantly, constantly to resist the urge, the temptation, the inclination to look at a bad fact pattern and believe it. rather than to entrust himself to the promise and the person of God. Again, think of it. Think of it how it grows. Think of how his faith grows. By the time you get to Genesis 22, Isaac has been born. And this is critical, and we'll see it in greater detail. Isaac has been born. The miracle has occurred. The promise has begun to be fulfilled. And then God calls Abram to kill him. Then God calls Abram to kill him, to sacrifice his son. Everything hangs on Isaac. Everything, all of the promises, all of the hope, everything that God has said to Abram, all of it hangs on Isaac. And here is God calling Abram to extinguish it all. Snuff it out. And how much has Abram's faith grown? He complies. He complies. He does it. And as they approach the appointed place where Isaac is to be made an offering, where he is to be sacrificed, Isaac says, Father, here here are the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abram looks at his son, looks at his only son, looks at the son whom he loves and says, 
God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Hebrews 11.19 tells us that Abram, quote, considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. How much has his faith grown? Enormously. What is Abram saying when he responds to Isaac? What is Hebrews commenting on when it comments on Abram's faith? Just this. To quote Abram, to paraphrase, to read between the lines, there's a bad factor, bad fact pattern here. Upon Isaac, all of the promises hang. Isaac's life is about to end, apparently. I don't know how he is going to do this. I don't know how God is going to resolve it. But God is able and God will do it. I don't know how. But he will, and I know he will, because I have seen him do it before. I've seen him do it before. I've seen him, to quote Romans 4, I have seen him bring things that do not exist into existence. I have seen him give life to a thing that was dead, meaning Sarah's womb. I've seen him do it before. I don't know how he's going to do it now. But he will do it. And Abram continued to believe. He continued to entrust himself to God. His faith didn't weaken. His faith grew. Even though circumstances and probably the people around him said, Abram, you are an idiot to continue to believe. That's true faith, folks. That's true faith. That's real faith. It is faith that is realistic. It stares the bad fact pattern squarely in the face. And it hopes beyond what can be seen. It perseveres in believing. What's the bad fact pattern in your life? What's the bad fact pattern? Remember, Abram, 25 years from the time God first made the promise until the promise was fulfilled. What's the bad fact pattern? What's the tough thing? What's the hard thing? What's the painful thing? What's the thing for which you have no answer? What is the thing that lacks resolution at this point? What's the thing that has you inclined to ask the question, how can I keep moving forward? How can I keep believing? How can I keep trusting God? How can I keep entrusting myself to God? How do I do it? Abram was promised a son. Abram got a son. But the Bible makes really clear that Abram wasn't looking for that son. He was looking for a different son, another son. He was looking for the son promised in Genesis 12, 7. He was looking for the son who is Jesus, who said himself, your father rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. 
Abram looked for the greater son. He never saw the fulfillment of that promise. My dear friends, I have seen the fulfillment of that promise. I have seen the fulfillment of the promise of the greater son. And so have you. I don't know how God is going to resolve the bad fact pattern in your life. I don't know when he will resolve the bad fact pattern in your life. But I know that he will. I know that he will. Because I know that he has resolved the most critically important, the most desperately bad fact pattern in your life. He's given you the promised son, Jesus, who by his life and death and resurrection has overcome sin and death and all of the ravaging effects of the fall. The bad fact pattern may not be resolved tomorrow. It may not be resolved next week. My friends, it may not be resolved before you die. But here is what I know. God is faithful. He has given you the promise of the Son. And that tells me that sooner or later, he will resolve the bad fact pattern in your life. And not only in your life, but in the whole of the cosmos. So... My plea for us all, for myself and for you, my plea for us all is that we together, you and I, would continue to entrust ourselves to him who is faithful and who has shown himself faithful in the face of an enormously bad fact pattern and who has given us his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, you know each person in this room. You know exactly where each of us is. You know the things we hope for and long for. You know the points of pain and struggle. You know the places of deep doubt and even even the cliff of despair. Father in heaven, by your grace, would you enable us to look at this cross, to see this cross as the evidence that you have resolved the most desperately serious fact pattern in all of life. And having done that, whether sooner or later, you will resolve all of the other bad fact patterns, not only for us individually, but for the whole of the cosmos. Father, give us grace to walk the steps of Abram and the steps of your son Jesus 
who entrusted himself throughout the course of his life to you. Give us grace and mercy to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.